Well, turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 5 again. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Today we're beginning a series that I have been anticipating since we began the study of the book of Ephesians some 78 messages ago. And after the key instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to every Christian to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God in chapter 5, verse 18, he then outlines the result and attitudes and behaviors that follow a person who is controlled by, influenced by, filled with his Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 5, verse 22, Paul turns to the home. He said in the following verses after he says, be filled with the Spirit in 5.18, that the believer will be filled with musical lyrics to communicate with other believers in a variety of songs, that the believer will live a life that is thankful to God in every context and in every experience of life, and that the believer will gladly submit to others in the body of Christ. The scrutiny of their looking at our own lives and the fear of Christ, trying to be sanctified with each other. Now we come to the family. It's important to note that the two places we spend most of our lives, at home and at work, are the two places Paul addresses for how the filling of the Spirit should impact us. He begins by talking to wives about being a godly wife, then husbands about being a godly husband, then children about being Christ-honoring, God-fearing children, and then to parents about how they should raise their kids. Then he transitions and says, if you're an employee, a slave, you need to know how to deal with your boss, your master. And if you're an employer, you need to know how to deal with your employees. So the main two areas we live our lives, work and home, he's got us covered. Today we look at the home. We begin looking at the home. I've entitled this series, At Home with Christ. Paul outlines specific, intentional, penetrating application and instruction to our lives, first to wives, then husbands, then children, then parents, to have a godly home. The point is simple, but the point is not easy. What's the point? The gospel shapes our family relationships as does no other influence. Let me say it again. The gospel shapes our family relationships as does no other influence. So let's say from the start today that if you know the Lord Jesus, if he's bought you by the blood of his cross, if you have faith in him as your Lord and Savior, if you believe in his death for you, his resurrection that gives us hope for life after death, his prayer for you right now before the Father, if you have been saved by his grace, this instruction will be welcome. If you haven't, this is going to be like fingernails on a chalkboard. But you can repent and believe the gospel today. So I want to begin our series by hearing Paul talk about how the gospel shapes our relationships at home. You know it well. You've read it many times. Hear it fresh, if that's at all possible. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives... Be submissive to or subject 
to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even of himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Timothy was a disciple of Paul. Timothy was Paul's chief disciple. He was his son in the faith. So when Paul, after three years of pastoring the church here at Ephesus, after three years, is called by God to get back on the mission circuit, back on the mission field, he taps Timothy on the shoulder and says, you're the pastor now. You're the chief shepherd here in the, in the city of Ephesus at this little church. This adds some interesting color to the books of First and Second Timothy, those pastoral epistles, because think of this. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's the pastor at the church where Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. You following? He's writing to the same church, to Timothy, who's pastoring the same church, I should say. I want you to hear how Paul describes the context, the situation, and the future of the culture and the situation there at Ephesus to Pastor Timothy, who's pastoring that church that Paul is writing to in the book of Ephesians. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just, just humor me to read this for you. It's fascinating. Paul says to Timothy, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And these people holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such people as this. For among them, 
are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never coming, being able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of a brave mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' folly was also. Now you, Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, Persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, while persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but, verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth, will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, and do the work of evangelists and fulfill your ministry. I took a casual glance yesterday at the front page of three major newspapers. And can I tell you, they're full of myths. Things that people teach and believe that simply aren't true, especially as regards to male and female and sexuality. Difficult times were promised to Timothy during the time of his pastorate at Ephesus, and that certainly talks about us. He says, in the last days, we are closer to the last and the, the final days than was Timothy. So we're closer than even he and his culture was. The description of these difficult times reads like our newspapers or the news channels or if you don't read the newspapers, your news feed. I mean, just listen. Men are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they hold to a form of godliness and deny its power. That's the world we live in. Evil men will receive from, proceed from bad to worse, and we are watching that in our very generation. Things that I would never have imagined could be spoken of freely on newscasts are being regurgitated daily 
in such impropriety that we can't even mention them from this pulpit. Don't miss the fact that Paul predicted that these things in our world, in our culture, would deteriorate. They began deteriorating there, and they are deteriorating. We also have to remember that Paul was preaching to a pre-Christian world in which immorality was rampant. We are preaching to a post-Christian world that some people have a memory of the good old days when it wasn't as bad as it is now. Well, it's worse than it was, and guess what? It's going to get worser. Excellent English. Can I just encourage you, though? This was nothing new even in the first century. Paul, excuse me, Isaiah said back 800 years before the writing of Paul in chapter 5, verse 18, Isaiah 5, 18, Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. Carts were used to drag things with convenience from one place to another because it was something valuable. People were dragging sin as if a valuable possession in a cart from one place to another. Two verses later, he says, woe to those who call evil good and who call good evil, who substitute darkness for light, who substitute light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight goes back to Isaiah's day. 800 years before Paul, people were saying that what is good is bad, evil. But what's evil, that's good. Back to the first century, Paul wrote this to the Romans. I know these are longer paragraphs, but they're worth stitching together, okay? Notice the accent on sexuality, on sexual propriety, on the value of marriage, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that which God has made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Oh, are there speculations about genderism and transgenderism and and male and femaleness today. For even though they knew God, did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. This is lesbianism. And in the same way, men abandoned their natural function for the, uh, of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, homosexuality. 
And just as God did not see fit to acknowledge, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and arrogant and boastful and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they did not only do the same, but also gave hearty approval to those who practice them. This indictment on the deterioration of culture could have been written yesterday about our own newspaper, giving hearty approval, hearty approval. Immorality has not only stained and soiled individual lives, but like the Romans, we are living in a world that gives hearty approval, tolerance to the depth and breadth of sin all around us. Well, our world laughs at sin, makes it a joke and a comedy. Our world pays money to be entertained by sin. And our world pushes and promotes sin with an embarrassing degree of shamelessness. Bible coins paints quite a scene on culture and its demise. Now, with all that in your mental equation, we come to our study of Paul's letter in Ephesians. His instruction on how the gospel and how gospel belief has influence in the home. But we need to be aware of how countercultural Paul's words will be. And they're countercultural because of a biblical worldview that he brings with him, with him in, in, in this passage. Now, this, I need to tell you that in the coming weeks, this is going to be like packing to go on a long trip. The, the trip through Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, 33 is important. But like going on a trip requires packing properly. This is going to require us to do some packing ahead of time as well. So we're going to, we're going to pull some things together this week and maybe in the coming weeks to get ready for Ephesians 5. We got to go back to the beginning. I don't know how to say this other than to say it. We live in a world that we need to begin by saying, do you know that there's a difference between boys and girls and men and women and males and females? I assume you would say yes. Folks, we can no longer assume that's the case in our culture. <laughs> the paragraph that we'll be studying in Ephesians is in radical, violent opposition to what we're facing as a worldview in our, our world and our culture. Listen, the Bible's instruction and regulations about marriage and about the family is under attack. It's under attack from feminism. It's under attack from what some people call evangelical feminism, which is an oxymoron. 
It's under attack from the transgender movement and the transgender ideologies and practice. It's under attack from the homosexual movement. It's under attack from adultery and temptations to unfaithfulness. It's under attack from unchecked immodesty. It's under attack from the pornography industry. It's under attack from immorality and entertainment. It's under attack from dating website and philosophies and ideology that basically say, make yourself into who you want to be on a dating site so someone can find you who's made themselves into who they want to be. But ultimately for you and me, I think what is really important in our world, in our culture, in our church is we're under attack from indifference and laziness. Oh, we think we know what Paul says and we might have a good idea, but are we being lazy and indifferent to what we know a husband is to be, what a wife is to be, how children are to respond, how parents are to respond? Are we indifferent and are we lazy? I can be. And I'm gonna tell you as... I've been studying this for several weeks in preparation for this. I have been so convicted that I, oh, I need to be a better husband to my precious Kim. I I have some serious things to improve upon, to repent of, to dial into. And I'm thankful that the Lord is saying, can't skip that paragraph, Rick. We're going to go through it together. So we're not going to rush through this study Hope that's okay. Um, we have come to a place where we're going to study the family and marriage over the next few studies. We must have a biblical Christian understanding of marriage, of sexuality, of sexual intimacy, and even of gender and sex identity, or we're going to be no clearer than the world is on the evening news. There's a self-evident truth we must state and cling to from the very beginning, folks. We all exist as humans created by God as either a man or a woman, and there is nothing else. There's no one who dives deeper into this truth and its implications than the Apostle Paul. James Boardwine is correct when he says this. Much of today's evangelicalism is not biblical. What I mean is that there is an increasingly obvious tendency within evangelicalism to portray a Christianity to the world without making reference to the Bible. End quote. He's right. So I I want us to kind of look at each other in the very beginning and say, We all know that we're going to cling to what the Bible says about men and women and husbands and wife and children and parents. We're going to look at what God says and believe it to be God's word and honor it that way and obey it because it is that. Folks, we need not be embarrassed by what the word of God says about the family. So from the very beginning of our study, All of us have to come to a point of deciding if our ideas and convictions about marriage and the family are defined by our Bible or our instincts or by our past or by our culture. So under the the next couple of sermons, we're going to look at the biblical fundamentals of marriage. Before we even talk about marriage in Ephesians 5, we have to go all the way back to talk about where marriage came from. 
So if you are, I'm aware of the different audiences here, by the way. We have young married people who are still trying to figure out what it means to be a godly husband and wife. We have those who are older who are going to be corrected, and we're all going to understand, we've been married for a while, what it means to be a better godly husband or wife. We have people who've been divorced who wish it would have worked out and who grieve over that. I'm aware that you're here, and I grieve with you. We have widows. We have widowers. We have singles who want someday to look into marriage with a right ideology. Can I just encourage you that for all of us, there's something here? Even if you're not in a position to get married, would you pray for those who are or those who are going to? Can we join that this is where the Lord has brought us as a church? And I, I just don't, I fear that someone for whom this is not immediately applicable, they'll check out and say, I'll be back in a, in a few weeks when we're finished with this. No, 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 no. Please join us in this. And when we get into the nitty gritty of it, you're also going to see that understanding marriage is essential to understand the gospel and understanding the gospel is essential to understanding marriage. So yes, I'm aware that there are basics. These are basics for most of you. But I'm also aware that we have new believers. We have new people in our church. And please give me patience and grace if I, I just go over the basics again and it's good for all of us to be reminded of them. So we're going to start today by looking at three theological fundamentals for understanding marriage. Now, I'm embarrassed to tell you that we're only going to get through the first point today and there might be more than three when I come back next time. So please... That is such a condescending laughter. I, God's word is replete with instruction on this. And I want us to drink from the garden hose as fast as we can. The first is this. God created humans in his image as male and female. That's as far as we'll get today. God created humans in his image as male and female. Now, Paul's going to ground his understanding of marriage in the Genesis account. In fact, he quotes the Genesis account in this passage. So let's go back and look at the Genesis account together. Join me in Genesis chapter 1. The first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Very familiar words, but let me read them for you. Verse 24, Genesis 1, 24. It's the sixth day of creation. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so, verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. But there's a problem. We'll find out in a minute that Adam is given the task to name these critters. And you can imagine what's going on here. God sets him up perfectly. Here come the animals. And he goes, buck, doe, bull, cow, male, female, Adam. Adam. Male, female, male, female, male, female, male, female, Adam. By myself. 
Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. I think that's a reference to the Trinity. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. It shall be food for you. To every beast on the earth, every bird of the sky, everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given green plant for food, and it was so. This is before there was meat being eaten after the flood. Verse 31, really important. We're going to come back to this. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was not good. What was it? Very good. Modo, very good. And it was evening and morning the sixth day. Now, when you get to chapter 2, God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Moses, goes back and he writes a second account of creation with the accent kind of dialed in, the the lens zoomed in on the creation of man. Skip down to verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Stop right there. Stop presses. This is before the fall of man. This is before sin entered the world. And God said something about his creation was not good. Does that not seem odd? What was not good? It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Buck and doe, bull and cow, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. Adam named everything. I, I just think, I wonder if he made up the word platypus. But no, he probably didn't. It's an English word. But I mean, he named all the creatures more than we have. There's many that have gone extinct. And he named them all. But he named them all in pairs, male and female. How do we know that? Verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Guys, if you want to get married, here's the plan. Take naps, okay? So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. That was a joke. And he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh. At that place, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which she had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. I think that is absolute, 100% historically literal. It's exactly what happened. So just put yourself in, in Adam's position. I can't say in Adam's clothes because he wasn't wearing any at this point. Put yourself in his position. Animal, 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 animal. They're nice, but they're not pretty. Not in the way that a woman would be. They're, they're kind, but they're not fellowship. There's not, they're, it can't help me. 
Animal, 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 name, 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 name. That was a lot of naming. God fashions into a woman. And then the man said, and the Hebrew is so loud here. You just got to feel this. The man said, this, this woman, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. After seeing all the animals, Moses saw Eve, excuse me, not Moses. (laughs) Adam saw Eve, Moses recorded it. Adam saw Eve and basically he said, Can I have that one? She was created for him. So remember, it was not good for the man to be alone. And now God says at the end, back the summary statement in chapter 1, verse 31, it was very good. So ladies, the creation was just good until you came along. And then it was very good. And you have that on biblical authority, just for the record. (laughs) that was a man who said amen (laughs) marriage is precious to God God invented marriage God performed the first wedding ceremony he gave Eve to Adam in the garden he proclaimed it very good marriage is designed by God to give the closest companionship on earth between two people He designed the physical, spiritual, and emotional oneness that marriage brings together that he calls in in Peter's epistle, the grace of life. And as we'll see, God will use marriage to tell people of his love for those who believe the gospel. So let's grab that phrase. It says it twice, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Male and female, he created them. This is incredible that we have to begin with the basic definition and differences, but we must... God made our bodies as male and female for reproduction. Males are made to father children by production of a seed. Women are made to mother children by production of an egg. And God is serious about men pretending to be women and women pretending to be men because they can't be. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, God addressed transgenderism in this way. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, Kim and I were talking about this, I think yesterday or maybe the day before, and poor Kim, she has to listen to me think about these sermons all week long, and so we're talking about this, and she says, now hang on. I mean, you have a couple of t-shirts that I like like to wear. Does that mean I can't wear that? No, no, no. The point here is you can't wear a t-shirt together or share a t-shirt that you like. The point is you can't try to dress up as the other sex. That's the point. This is literally transitioning into another, into a person thinking you're another sex. That's exactly what we're dealing with today. And as a footnote to that, can you remember, can you just take note of the fact that God was regulating against this during the wilderness wanderings? 
There's nothing new under the sun. Some of you are old enough, not all of you, but some of you are old enough to remember the hit comedy in the 1970s called M.A.S.H. On M.A.S.H. there was a character, Corporal Klinger. Here's the thing. Corporal Klinger was endlessly trying to get dismissed from the army during the Korean War by having psychiatric problems. You know how he tried to tell everyone he had a psychiatric problem? He dressed up as a woman. He thought, if I am transgender, I will get assigned as insane and I'll get out of the army. How four decades have changed that perspective. In other words, God says it is an abomination for men to pretend to be women and women to pretend to be men. In other words, our sexual identity is binary. There are only two, by two, men and women. Now, I know what some of you are saying. What about intersex people? What about people who are born with multiple uh, genitalia? And I understand that, but the term intersex describes a wide range of combinations of what's considered male and female biological anomalies. But know this, those are disorders. Those are deformities. They're not a third gender, a third sex. I'll have more to say about that in the coming weeks. This is like trying to normalize a person with three arms or one leg or seven eyes as just another kind of physiological characteristic like brown hair and gray hair and blonde hair and blue eyes and brown eyes. No, it's a deformity. So you can't make that as a third option. Let me just pull a few things together here. First of all, the distinction between males and females is biological and anatomical. When a child is born, the doctor immediately identifies the baby as it's a boy or it's a girl, male or female. This is done in a nanosecond by looking at the genitalia. Actually, most couples can take a peek at the sex of their baby before it's even born on sonograms. And until recently, identifying a male and a female was self-evident and patently obvious. Not so much anymore. In March of 2022, in the 13th hour of the confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Justice Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, Senator Masha Blackburn asked the nominee to define the word woman. Jackson replied, I can't. This is for a Supreme Court justice. I can't define woman, she says. You can't, Blackburn asked? Not in this context, Jackson said. I'm not a biologist. Blackburn asked, the meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't even give me a definition, end quote. I'm embarrassed that we have to start today and say, you do know that there's a difference between boys and girls and males and females. But we ha this is the world we live in. We have to start there. Conservative columnist, Matt Walsh released a mini documentary last year on the simple question, what is a woman? It was a shocking expose to see those that support the transgender possibility and movement 
who were largely unwilling to, and unable to answer the simple question, what is a woman? Most of their answer was, well, it's a woman. That's no answer at all. Listen, a woman is an adult female, and a man is an adult male. This is not complicated. And what makes one a male or female is scientifically and observably obvious and undeniable. Sex is defined by biology. You either have two X chromosomes or an X and a Y chromosome, and you have male or female anatomy. It's that simple. Second thing I want you to take away is the idea that gender is a social, the idea that gender is a social construct is a charade. It's a lie. Society cannot legitimately construct different definitions for male and female, for man and woman. This is so absurd that some even argue that men can become pregnant and bear children. In September of 20, 2022, Planned Parenthood doctor Bhavik Kumar said that men can get pregnant and give birth during a congressional hearing. I'm not making that up. You can find it, that exchange on YouTube. Simply nonsense. In a word, it's foolishness. The third point I want to walk away with is sexual identity is binary according to Jesus. In his discussion on divorce, Jesus himself made some interesting assumptions. I won't get into all this. We'll definitely come back to this in our study of Ephesians 5. But he's talking about divorce to the, to the Pharisees. And he said, have you not read the, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, become joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. In other words, Jesus took the Genesis account literally and seriously. He affirmed that humanity is designed to be male or female. He also pointed to marriage as a union between one man and one woman, not the polygamy of some of the disobedient kings in the Older Testament. So the whole discussion is predicated on God's ideal that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. And then this, sex is a part of God's a part of bearing the image of God. By sex, I mean male and female. Sex is a part of bearing the image of God. We need to be so convicted and committed to this from the very beginning of our study. God created two distinct sexes, man and woman, male and female, and they are both image bearers of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You say, why is that important? I've been surprised and saddened, honestly, in recent years to watch this modern movement called retrievalism. It leads many Protestants, even smart Protestants, to admire and promote the Catholic Church's leading theologian, Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas went so far as to teach that the birth of a girl is the result of a male embryo that went wrong. He also taught that male friends can be better helpmeets or better friends than women to men, except in procreation. J.I. Packer has this insightful comment. He says, quote, 
Aquinas affirmed that women are mentally as well as physically weaker than men and prone to sin and always by their nature subject to some man. Husbands, husbands may correct their wives by corporal punishment, by spanking them if necessary. And children ought to love their father more than their mother. End quote. That's Thomas Aquinas. Let me quote Dr. Aquinas again. Aquinas in his own words. Quote, As regards to the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten. For the active force in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex, while the production of a woman comes from defect in the active force from some material indisposition or even from some external influence such as that of a south wind, which is moist, as the philosopher Aristotle observes, end quote. Packer comments about Aquinas and says, quote, It may be said without fear of contradiction that the great theologian's oracles about the second sex women make distinctly dismal reading. You think? Uh, no. Being male and being female are both a part of the glory of God expressed in bearing his image. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the coming weeks. You need to know something. I need to give you a warning. If you hold to a biblical view of sex and sexuality, sexual purity, and the glory of God in marriage, you need to be prepared to be described as being out of date, old-fashioned, archaic, chauvinistic, backwards, legalistic, and even puritanical. Fulfilling God's roles in marriage is only possible. It's only desirable. It's only understandable to those who are believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember what Peter, excuse me, Paul told Timothy. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus should expect what? Persecution. So I want to ask you to join me in the coming weeks of the study to develop our convictions about marriage and the family out of faith, not out of fear. We're crazy enough to believe that this Bible is true. And I'm glad there's other crazies with us. Paul says, if you follow the gospel, the world will call you foolish and will call what you believe the foolishness of God. I'm so thankful to be a part of the church, a church that holds to such, air quotes, foolishness. Let me pray. Oh, Father, this is just scratching the surface of what you say about marriage. We want to be teachable. Lord, I pray for anyone in the hearing of this sermon who would struggle with gender identity or 
homosexual thoughts or inclinations, that you would show them there's grace and forgiveness and mercy for those sins and that you've made a way to be different, to be changed into the image of your son. Thank you for our grace in meeting and the grace of this precious book, our Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.